you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. Again, my name is Steve Marshman, and uh, Jose is in Romania. In fact, about an hour and a half ago, Jose was up for the 12th time preaching the gospel in Romania. So he'll be back next week. I can't wait to hear the good reports, but it's Sunday night now in Romania and pray for him as he travels back that he uh, stays healthy and rested so he could be here and he'll be in Nehemiah 7 next week, which means this week we're doing chapters 4, 5, and 6. Yeah, you heard me right. Three chapters. That is a lot. That is quite a bit. So we're not going to be able to go verse by verse. We're just going to hit the highlights. And some of you like that and some of you don't. It's like my grandson, Patrick, and his mom and dad are sitting down here. But my grandson, Patrick, is four and a half, by the way, but he's turned into be an incredible football fan. I mean, he loves football to the chagrin of his parents because they were trying to steer him away from football because they don't want him to play football and get a concussion. But maybe reverse psychology is actually alive and well because he loves football. And he informed us the other day that he doesn't like highlights. He's four and a half years old. How do you not like the highlights? He says, Papa, he calls me Papa, I want to watch the whole game. He doesn't like the shortened version. Well, today we're going to hit the highlights. So if you don't like that, this afternoon in your free time, go read all the scriptures from four to six. This is an ancient text. The scene is about 444, 444 BC. And it's about Nehemiah rebuilding a wall, a rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So this is 2,500 years ago about a rebuilding of a wall. And some of you are already going like, oh, no, who cares about that? It's his own ancient wall. Who cares? We care. You'll see why. Stick with me. What our roadmap for today is, is I'm going to just hit some highlights of the text, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Just a couple of touch points, and then we're going to apply it to our lives today as we follow Jesus. Because that's the reason we're here, right? Because we're followers of Jesus. Any followers of Jesus in the room? Yes, that's right. That's why we're here. We live in a crazy time, but we have Jesus. Now, walls are interesting to me because if you want to have an interesting side time, just Google famous walls and you're going to first pop up a thing that pop up probably is the Berlin Wall. And my wife Vicky and I, when we first moved to uh, Germany, it was 1987, the Berlin Wall was still up and it was still in force, meaning the week after we got there, Somebody tried to escape East Berlin, and they literally shot and killed this guy. So this is an unusual wall. Usually walls are meant to keep people out. The Berlin Wall was meant to keep people in, and it worked for a couple uh, decades. And then another famous wall is the China Wall, the, the Great Wall of China. That thing's an amazing thing. It was built over 2,000 years, a bunch of different sections. If you put them all together, it would, it would stretch from California to New York. I mean, this thing is massive, almost 4,000 miles long. Well, today we're going to talk about a different wall, Nehemiah's Wall from 40, 444 B.C. And what's unique about this wall is that it's a reconstruction. It's not a new wall, like the Great Wall of China or the Berlin Wall, but this is a new wall that was built for a very specific purpose. So we're going to start back about 140 years before chapter 4. The scene is in 2 Kings chapter 25, and what I'm going to read for you, and it's going to be on the slide, uh, is that what happened to Jerusalem when the wall came down. And here's the text, 2 Kings 25, verse 9 and 10. He, which is Nebuzaradan in this story, set fire to the temple of the Lord, 
the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So that's what happened to the walls in 586 BC. Invasion by the Babylonian army. They burnt and pillaged the entire city. Temple, buildings, wall, all come crumbling down. And it's a real event. There's archaeological evidence. They found uh, Babylonian arrowheads around where the walls are. And when Nehemiah came to rebuild this wall, it was a reconstruction project. And they used the stones that were left over lying there for about 140 years. And the wall wasn't all that big. It was about 1.7 miles long. So way smaller than the Berlin Wall or China Wall. But they're doing it by hand, nevertheless. Um, And one of the things I want you to notice right here up front before we get through the story, even though it had been down for 140 some years, it only took them 52 days to rebuild it. 52 days. I mean, this was a major, major effort. All hands on deck. Everybody coming together. So why are we going to talk about today uh, this wall is because chapters 4, 5, and 6, and the reason we're covering three chapters all together is there's one big theme between these three chapters, and the word is opposition. Opposition. When Nehemiah came back to build this wall, there were some folks that didn't want him to build the wall, and he faced some serious, serious opposition from different people and Area. So we're going to start our text today, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. And again, we're just going to hit the highlights. We're going to read the first three verses. And in these texts, you're going to meet two enemies of Nehemiah, two thugs, if you will, Samballot and Tobiah. Let's read the text. Nehemiah 4, verse 1. When Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Notice the scorn and ridicule here. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Verse 3, Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox Climbing up on it would break down their wall of stone. So this is the start of the opposition to Nehemiah from Samballot and Tobiah. Samballot was in charge of the area of Samaria, which is just north of Jerusalem, a pretty big area. And Tobiah was in charge of the Ammonites, which is northeast of Jerusalem across the Jordan River. And what we're going to see in this chapter is some pretty good opposition. Now, one of the things that note is the reason they're talking about it being so, uh, the the walls being so weak is because when they were burnt down, when the city was burnt down, the stones had a fairly high limestone content. And when you subject this limestone to fire, it makes it weak. So that's that's what's behind some of of that going on. So the, the opposition that Nehemiah has is real. And what I'm going to do today is a little bit different, different tactic. If you've listened to a bunch of messages or read a bunch of commentaries on Nehemiah, usually right about now they start talking about Nehemiah's leadership. And that's good, great, appropriate, fine. Nehemiah's a fantastic leader. But I'm going to take a little bit of a different tactic today. I'm going to talk about the opposition that Nehemiah is facing. This opposition from these guys, what's it starting out like? A whole bunch of ridicule and just mocking 
Basically, it's ancient bullying. That's what's going on. Look at what they say. What are these feeble Jews doing? In today's language, we say, oh, that person's weak. Will they restore their wall? Well, that's someone saying, you're not good enough. Will they offer sacrifices? That's an accusation against their faith, saying your faith is no good. Your God is no good. Your faith is a crutch. Will they finish in a day? Like, you are crazy. You're delusional if you could actually build this thing back that fast. And then can they bring these stones back to life? They're saying, you're unrealistic. You're not even a good construction person if you're going to try to build these walls from those old, old burnt stone. And, of course, Tobiah just piles on with just sarcasm oozing out of him. And he's basically saying, Nehemiah, you're so stupid. Now, today, you and I, we get some of that opposition, don't we? Sometimes it's from friends, sometimes from coworkers, sometimes from other places. Sometimes it's that small voice in your head telling you you're weak, you're not good enough. And we're going to talk about how do we deal with opposition. That's the whole point of where we're going today. How do we deal with opposition in the 21st century? But first, we've got to finish the passage. The rest of chapter 4, go read it. If you want to watch the whole football game, go read it. Watch it, and what you're going to find is that Nehemiah takes this opposition, this threat from these two guys very seriously because not only are they mocking him, they have an army behind them. So they could literally come after Nehemiah and his people. So what Nehemiah does when you read the story, he takes half, half of the people and arms them with spears and bows, and they get shields and they get armor and they're they're protecting the building project it's so intense that the guards don't even change their clothes they literally sleep in their clothes ready to come out and fight off the enemy so Nehemiah takes this super seriously well if that weren't bad enough then we go to chapter 5 and there's some more opposition but this time the opposition is internal it's from inside the community. It's from inside the Jewish community. Let's read uh, just chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some of the Jews were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So this is about rich versus poor. We don't have that argument today, do we? That, that's not a problem in our culture, is it, today? No, I mean, the rich and the poor were fighting against each other. And in fact, if you read the rest of the patches, which I encourage you to do, the wealthy Jews were charging interest to the poor Jews. Oh, that's just all kinds of wrong. And Nehemiah stopped that. And there was some stuff about getting food to the poor. But the point here is that Nehemiah is facing real life opposition, both external and internal in his community. It was tough. And that's why he shows up as such a good leader in the Bible. But you might be sitting here today going, you know what? I get it. I could identify with Nehemiah. I'm getting it from both sides too. I have opposition at work. I have opposition at home. I have strife at work. I have strife at home. I'm getting it from both sides. And if you're here today and that's you, stick with me because we're going someplace with this. But first, let's finish the text, the highlights of the text. Chapter 6, we move on to chapter 6 
in Nehemiah, we go back to the external opposition. So we have Samballot and Tobiah coming against Nehemiah. And then in chapter 5, we have the Jews themselves coming, uh, causing all sorts of internal strife in the community. And then chapter 6 starts, and there's an important thing to know before we read chapter 6. At the beginning of chapter 6, the walls are rebuilt. That project is done. The walls are complete, but the gates are not. The gates have not been rebuilt yet. And there's 10 gates. And these gates are huge. We think gate, just a little tiny thing that opens up to, to come through and out. Now the gates around Jerusalem are pretty big. It's a place of commerce. It's a place of meeting. It's a place where lots of community stuff happens. So those gates have to be rebuilt to, for, the, for the city to be actually protected. So as of right now, at this point in the story, the city's not protected. So what happens is Sanballat and some of his uh, fellow uh, guys are coming after Nehemiah with some trickery because what, what they were trying to do before is not working, right? So let's look at verse 2 of chapter 6, just one verse. Chapter 2 of verse 6 says, Sanballat... And Geshem, and Geshem, by the way, is an Arabian. So now we've got a third opposition in addition to Sambal and Tobiah. Now we have Geshem as well. Sambal and Geshem sent me this message. So they sent this message to, to uh, Nehemiah. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So Nehemiah figures this out. He figures out that this is a scheme to harm him. They couldn't get him in the city. They couldn't muster an attack against the city. So I know, here's the trick. We'll bring Nehemiah out of the city. The plains of Ono are about 20 miles north, so quite a ways away from the city. And if we can get Nehemiah alone and isolated, we could kill him. Well, he, he doesn't fall for that tactic, so they try the second trick. So there's another trick they try to play on Nehemiah. And this one's actually kind of like a, almost like a Cold War spy novel with, you know, a Russian spy in your midst. And there's this guy named Shemamiah, uh, and he gets hired by Sanballat and Tobiah to try to trick Nehemiah. So let's read that verse, which is down in verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10 says this. One day I went to the house of Shemamiah, son of D, the son of M, that's how I read names when I don't know how to pronounce them. So Shemamiah, son of D, son of M, who was shut in at his home. So he was a shut in. So Nehemiah is probably doing a good deed. He's going to meet uh, someone who's shut in at his home. And Shemamiah says, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. And let us close the temple doors because the men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. Now this was an absolute total intimidation scare tactic. But Nehemiah is very wise. And here's something that you have to know to understand this, this story. He's inviting Nehemiah into the temple. But Nehemiah wasn't a priest. Nehemiah is not a priest, so he's not supposed to go in the temple. And Nehemiah knows this because he's wise. He knows his Bible. He knows his Hebrew scriptures. And I'm going to read the response to you. Um, you can follow along if you want. It starts in verse 11. Nehemiah talking says, but I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. See, Nehemiah knew he shouldn't go into the temple because he's not a priest. Verse 12, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me, and catch this, because Tobiah and Sambaut had hired him. They hired a spy. Verse 13, he had been hired to intimidate me, 
so that I would commit a sin by doing this and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And that doesn't happen today at all, does it? It happens all the time. What do we call it? We call it cancel culture. We don't generally go out and kill people. We just discredit and defame their name and then they get canceled and then they lose all credibility. And Nehemiah is discerning in this situation. He realizes what's going on and he doesn't get fooled by the trickery. So let's just sum up these three chapters out of Nehemiah. I know that was quick. That was highlights. It was like watching a couple touchdown passes. But here's what happened. Chapter 4, mocking and ridicule and an army against Nehemiah. Chapter 5, internal strife, mostly between rich and poor. And then chapter 6, some skillful deceptions from the oppositions of Nehemiah. But what do we do? How do we take this ancient text which is a true story from 2,500 years ago, and make it relevant today. If, if you were kind of dozing off and all that, now, now's the time to listen up because here, here comes the relevant, the relevant passage today that we're going to go to. First, though, we need to ask ourselves a question. Simple question, simple answer. Why build walls around a city? For what? Protection. That's why we build walls around a city, for protection but if remember the history that we read this wall was rebuilt it was attacked and destroyed 140 years earlier so they know it could happen again so they're really motivated to not let that happen again but there's another thing that we read in that story what got destroyed along with the city and the walls the temple the temple the temple is huge we probably will never fully understand what the weight of the temple is to the Israelites. Because for the Israelites, the temple was where the literal presence of God was. God himself dwelt in the temple. And the very, very center of the temple was called the most holy place. The most holy place. Now we don't have a temple today, do we? So we fast forward to today in the 21st century, we don't have a temple, so where is the presence of God? Where is the presence of God today? If you're a follower of Jesus, living under the new covenant, covenant, where is the temple? Well, you don't need to turn there, but Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, says it very clearly to us, and he, he, he says it in the form of a question, like you should know this, follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, you should know this. Here's what Paul says. Don't you know that you yourselves, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit, Holy Spirit, dwells in you. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you're the temple. I'm the temple. And together we collectively are the temple. And collectively we call that temple what? The church. I wish there was a way, I really, really do wish there was a way we can get rid of this English phrase of, are you going to go to church on Sunday? Because it makes no theological sense. Because when we say that, we're asking, are you going to the church building this Sunday? And the church isn't a building. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're the temple and we are always the temple wherever we are. We don't go to the church, we are the church, the people are the church. And this is key to our understanding not only of this passage, but the entire 
story of the scriptures. Now, I'm gonna do two sidebars for you today because I can't help myself. I always like to help people read the Bible because I personally struggled for years learning how to read the Bible. So I'm gonna give you two sidebars today that are gonna help. This is the first one, and it's about the presence of God through the arc of scripture the presence of God being the temple. So the first place the presence of God shows up in, in, in highlighted neon lights is the Garden of Eden because God himself walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And by the way, would that be cool or what? Could you imagine going to the park, walking in the garden and hanging out with God, just asking him questions? That just Gives me goosebumps to think about. And then next, we get the tabernacle, which is another word for tent, in the desert after the Exodus, which became the temple when Solomon built the temple. But they have the same purpose. At the center of the tabernacle, center of the temple, is the most holy place, the presence of God. And then Jesus, Jesus incarnate, Son of God, come down from heaven in the flesh. That's God, Emmanuel, God with us. So he's the temple. But he went to be with the Father and sat down at the right hand of the Father. But he didn't leave us alone, right? He sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to be with us. And now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and that's the presence of God. That's the temple today. And we live in that space right here. And just to finish the ark, when we get to Revelation, which we had a whole series on that last spring, you can go listen to that. When we get to Revelation, we see the story of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem come out of heaven down to earth and there's no physical temple building there because God and the Lamb, Jesus, are its temple. And here's the challenge. Sometimes the temple comes under attack. Sometimes the church is under opposition. It gets attacked. We feel it today. We see it today. And just like Nehemiah, when he protected the temple, we need to protect ourselves and the church from opposition. We don't need to build walls to separate us, but we need to protect ourselves from opposition. What does it look like in today's world? Well, I'm gonna give you a little gem of a verse out of Proverbs. I mean, this thing is just full of truth, and I love it, and it's short, and it's short enough, I'm gonna ask you to memorize it. Proverbs 4.23, in the NIV it says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. I do want you to memorize it. It's on the screen. So on the count of three, let's say it together. One, two, three. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. This is the key to how we are to live today. When the accusation comes, when the opposition comes, and if it hasn't, it will, just wait. People, groups, things saying to you and saying to me, you're weak, you're not good enough, your faith is a crutch, you're delusional, you're stupid. That happens to me, I know I'm not the only one. Sometimes it's a voice in my head. Sometimes it's been a coworker. This phrase, your faith is a crutch, was told to me by my boss that I worked for for five years after he said that. He never respected my faith. So I had to guard my heart against that attack. And today, actually one of my friends is sitting in the front row who told me last week, I can't even mention my faith at work. I'll get fired. 
And that's not supposed to happen, but that's, that's the opposition we live in today. Now, I want to give you the second sidebar. It's we're going to have two sidebars. One was the temple. This one's about heart because the, the, the verse says, guard your heart. And some of you, as soon as I said that, you instantly thought, guard your emotions, guard your feelings, but it means so much more than that. Here's a quote from uh, Bruce Walkie, great Old Testament scholar, and he tells us what heart means in the Bible because it's different in the Bible than what we think about in today's English. Here's what heart means. Heart is the most important anthropological term in the Old Testament, but the English language has no equivalent. Isn't that interesting? The heart in biblical anthropology controls the body, its facial expressions, and all of its other members. No other English word combines the complex interplay of intellect, sensibility, and will. And I love this last part. The heart also thinks, reflects, and ponders. Now, I want to give you a help here. Again, this applies to the entire Bible, not just today's passage. When you read heart, the way it's actually thought of and written about in the scriptures, it's actually heart and mind. My uh, professor of theology, Gary Brashears at Western Seminary, told us that one day, and I loved it ever since that. When you're reading the Psalms and it says heart, heart and mind. Because in English, when we say heart, you think emotions and feeling. And when you say mind, you think reasoning, thinker, brain, planner. Well, the Bible doesn't know that distinction. It's all one. It's all wrapped in to one essence of who you are, how you think, feel, and all that all wrapped into one word, heart. And that's why the verse says everything you do flows from it. It doesn't say your emotions flow through, from it. Everything you do, your emotions, your feeling, your mind, your plans, everything you do flows from your heart. So we need to guard it because everything we do flows from it. We need to guard it. We need to guard our reasoning. We need to guard our emotions. We need to guard our thinking from this opposition. Now this next little piece, there's so many people, so many scientists and scholars that have said this, it's just generally true. Many, many people have said that the first step to solving a problem is recognizing the problem or maybe accepting that there's a problem. The problem is we're under attack. Our hearts are under attack. We need to recognize and accept that we do have opposition. And where does it come from? Where does it come from? Well, I'm going to go all the way back to 1979, aging myself. But 1979, I was a new believer. I'd come to the faith uh, and decided to follow Jesus. And the person who taught me how to read the Bible taught me a lot of these truths about the Bible. And one of the truths he taught me about the Bible that's true then, it's true today, it'll be true all the way to when Jesus comes back, that the Bible outlines basically three oppositions, three oppositions, and here are the three. The first one is the evil one, the devil. The evil one, the devil, who wants to come kill and destroy us. The second one is the broken world we live in. We do live in a broken world, don't we? I mean, if you don't think so, just go watch the news and say, is that broken or is that working? That's broken. Well, we live in a broken world. And then the third one is our own sin nature. The Bible calls it the flesh. Paul calls it the flesh. You know, that, that's not who we are. When we're a follower of Jesus, you become a child of God. You're fearfully, wonder, wonderfully made. You're an image bearer. There's all these wonderfully, mostly good things about you, but we do carry this baggage of sin around, and we have to confess it and get rid of it regularly, and it's an enemy to our heart and mind. Now, um, 
recently, a friend of the church, John Mark Comer, who many of you know, has just published a book, and I just got finished reading it this last week after I wrote this down. I read this book, I go, wow, that fits, so I should recommend it to my friends. John Mark Comer wrote this book called Live No Lies. Live No Lies, Amazon just came out, buy it. And the chapters in the book are the devil, the world, and the flesh. So what John Mark's talking about is this truth, and here's the subtitle to convince you to maybe go take a look and read it. The subtitle is recognize... Remember, we have to do that, but to recognize the problem. Recognize and resist the three enemies that sabotage your peace. I'm going to talk about peace in just a second. I'll tie that in. But uh, if, if you want to know more about this opposition that we face, get the book. Now, good news. If you're here going, man, this is, this is a lot of negative stuff. You're talking about people attacking us and coming after us and the, the devil, the world, and the flesh. Let me just pause and give you some amazing hopes from the scripture, actually from God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit himself. If you're a note taker, these aren't going to be on the slide. Write these verses down. First one's Hebrews, Hebrews 2.14. By his death, Jesus' death, by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So the devil's our opposition, but he's a loser. The devil has influence on us, but only if we yield it to him because Jesus, by his death on the cross, conquered the power of death. He conquered the devil, and we don't have to fret, but we do have to do something else. Well, what about the world? Jesus himself saying this, John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. And and I I would love to have been there when that, like, really? I thought... I thought we weren't going to have any more trouble when you were here. No, Jesus says you're going to have trouble. But look what he says right after that. But take heart. Notice the word, but take heart. He could easily have said, take heart in mind, but that's what he meant. Take heart in mind. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the broken world. And it's past tense. It's a done deal. We're just waiting for the plan of restoration to come true in the end. And then the flesh. What about the flesh? Paul, Galatians chapter 5. You have to read the, the whole chapter, but towards the last half of the chapter, Paul gives us this nuggets of wisdom. He says, walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Christ, follower Jesus, that's us. We've crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. So this is not something where you have to go, uh, how am I gonna do this? And there's a spectrum in, in the Christian life between let go and let God, you do nothing, just let go and let God, that doesn't work. Or over here, and you just go, uh, I don't even need God, I'm just gonna gut it out. You know, uh, Gary Brashears talks about, I'm gonna gut it out for Jesus. You know, has that worked for anybody? No. So in the middle is the truth where we need to guard our hearts underneath the power of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. So, some of you are here going, okay, that's great, but that basically sounds like ideology and theology, and what's the nuts and bolts? What's the plan? And if you're thinking that way, I'm with you because you're my people. (laughs) Like, give me the thing to do. So here is the thing to do. It's easy to say, a little challenging to do, but you get really good at it over time. Here is the nuts and bolts thing we do to guard our hearts and minds. It's this. Live in the presence of God. Live in the presence 
of God. To guard our hearts and minds, we need to wade in to the presence of Jesus Christ. We need to be with him, experience him. One more scripture passage, and that'll be the last one. It'll be up on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there, but Philippians chapter 4. Verses four through seven. And this, this passage is often used to encourage people to pray. And that's good and right. But I'm gonna go a little higher level and say you can't be in prayer unless you're in the presence of God. So I'm gonna read this. I want you to notice all the presence language, the presence of God language. Philippians four, starting in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. In the Lord, in his presence, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He's not far, he's present, he's near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And if you do this, here's the prize, so to speak. Verse seven, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, notice the language, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells us how we are to guard our hearts and minds, by living in the presence of God, by living in Christ Jesus. And there's this great benefit when we do that. We have peace. So how do we live? We live in his presence, rejoicing in the Lord always. John 16, Jesus talking says, abide in me, live in me, remain in me. We have to be in his presence because he's near. And this peace is the best part. So one last slide, done with the slides for today. Take a picture, write it down, whatever. How do we summarize this whole concept all in one sentence? Memorize Proverbs 4.23 and then think through this sentence this week. When we live in the presence of God... The peace of God guards our hearts and minds. When we live in the presence of God, the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. And there's one part of this I don't particularly like. And you, those planners that are my people, notice what Paul says about this. It transcends all understanding. Well, transcends is kind of a big term. What's that mean in plain English? You ain't going to figure it out. You're not going to be able to figure out how this works. If you want to know how presence of God actually results in peace, good luck. But you don't need to figure it out. We just need to live in it and enjoy it. Live in the, live in the presence of God and enjoy it. I'm going to ask the worship band to come up and tell you about when I first got back from Germany, living in the United States, I had a pretty tough time because it was the 1991 recession. It turns out that a lot of people don't care. If you know how to fly an airplane, that's not helpful for most jobs unless you're gonna be an airline pilot. So it was tough to get a job and it was hard work. And frankly, God got pushed to the side. And for some of you today, I wanna encourage you. I don't wanna give you guilty conscious, whatever. I just want to encourage you. If in some way, shape, or form, you've pushed God a little bit to the side. And there's a, I mean, we talk about it all the time. Is it Netflix? Is it social media? Whatever it is. The question is, is have you done that or are you living in the presence of God? And we need reminders like this. I need reminders for this. When I was going through that tough time, and by the way, 
Some of you are moms of little children. One of my daughters is here today. She has no time. This is face. She's got two little kids. She's got no time. But she has to make time for the presence of God. So this friend of mine gave me this sign. He said, put this on your wall. And it was this great little sign. All it said was, time for God, question mark. And it changed my life. It literally changed my life because I got time for God. And I sat down. I was going to go do something. I see that sign. I go, oh. I got to stop and pray. I got to stop and read the scriptures. I got to check in with my wife. She, she, she needs help with my two little kids. Whatever it is, you got to stop sometimes. Just stop and make time for God. And maybe the Holy Spirit is talking to you today and going, you know what? I have made God the third, fourth, fifth priority in my life. Not that these other things are bad. It's just God needs to be on top. The presence of God needs to be on top because here's what happens. When we live in the presence of God, we spend time with him. It's communion we'll do in a second. It's prayer. I already said you can't pray without being in the presence of God. But it's more than that. It's more than just those traditional things. When you serve God in any capacity, you're in his presence. When you read his word, man, that's a great way to be in his presence. Here's one that most people don't think about. When you enjoy God's creation, I believe you're in his presence. I have four grandkids and I love spending time with them because I see God in my grandkids. I see when, when my son Michael takes Amelia, who's like one and a half, tips her upside down and swings her and she's just laughing with joy. I see the work and beauty of God in that. When Nakai, who's almost three, on the pumpkin patch, goes up to a cow, she loves animals, and she kisses this cow. <laughs> and she's just, ah, she's so happy. Like, that's God. That's the way God made her. So we enjoy his creation. We enjoy being with his people. I have coffee with people fairly often just to discuss whatever. And when they fill me up with God's stuff, that's being in the presence of God. Ultimately, here's the test. Are you in the presence of God or not? Are you becoming more like Jesus? If you're spending time with God, you're going to come become more like Jesus. And you're going to have this incredible peace that we can't understand. We'll be less angry. We'll be less anxious. We'll be more content. We'll be more loving. We'll be more giving. We'll be more compassionate. And we'll have this peace that makes absolutely no sense, but we're going to enjoy it to the ends of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being here. And as we take this time right now, just in our space to clear our minds from distractions and for the people at home in their living room, we pray you just take time to stop, push out the distractions and spend some good quality time with God, with Jesus, the savior of the world. And when all God's people said, amen.